it is great to be worshiping together and celebrating communion together. It's one thing that allows us as a community to be connected. We're connected to Christians all through history, celebrating our need for forgiveness. We're connected right now, anywhere and everywhere as a church family, connected through the word and through worship and communion. Whether you're sitting in a, in a pew right now or sitting on a sofa, it's really a way which we come together as a community to celebrate who God is. And today we're going to find out that God is a a disciplinarian, and he loves us enough to discipline us so that we will grow. If you haven't been with us, we've been journeying through the book of Numbers. We began in the wilderness of preparation, learning a lot about the tabernacle of meeting, that God wanted us to count on him in the center of our life. Then we've moved now to the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness of testing, where God keeps putting his people in a similar circumstance over and over again to see if they're willing to trust him this time. And this is a pivotal moment in our journey in Numbers because this is the moment that people decide not to trust him after two years of boot camp and not go into the land. Twelve spies just went in last week. Ten came back and said, no way we're going to do it. Two said yes. And God's going to say, all right, guys, one more lap around the wilderness. Forty years you're going to wander until there's a generation that's willing to trust me. And if you find that your life begins to rhyme and you go through the same circumstances over and over again, it's God probably saying, all right, out of the pool, out of the pool. Did you learn how to trust me yet? When, when we choose the, uh, the rumble of the grumble rather than the attitude of gratitude, God will say, all right, let's try it again, one more lap. So that becomes very stern in this chapter today as we look at the main point of the end of chapter 14. Now to do that, I want to share a tool with you that I find very helpful in studying the Bible. Because sometimes I'll tell you kind of what the point was that I found in the Bible and you're like, oh, it's good or it's not good or whatever. How do we get that? So when I finished my grad school uh, work about 20 years ago, I came across a tool, it's a picture from a book called Grasping God's Word. And it looks something like this picture that you're about to see. It's when you think of a passage in the Bible, you're going to study their town, what was going on in that culture, in that time, in those circumstances that God was specifically speaking to in their culture. Then you're going to figure out what is the universal principle that bridges from their time to our time. And there might be something that was specifically related to their culture that doesn't necessarily relate to our culture. So you're trying to find the universal principle or principle bridge, a truth that applies to all people at all time and all places. Then you're going to think about your own town, your own life, your own application, and say, if this is what God would say to them in that situation, what would he say to me in my situation? But the size of the river makes for some of the interpretive challenges. They might be under an old covenant, you're under a new covenant. They're talking to a nation at war, you're talking to a personal application. So when you're trying to interpret, you're trying to figure out how wide that river is. The difference in covenants you're under, the difference in language, the difference in industrial industrial culture for us or an agricultural uh, culture for them. So I want to walk through chapter 14 a little bit and kind of do this process to figure out what the main point is before we dive into it today. So first, let's look at their town and what we learned the last couple weeks. Their town, they've had recent supernatural and miraculous displays of God's power. Red Sea crossing, Mount Sinai, pillar of fire, God appearing to them for two years. They've had daily miraculous examples of fire and cloud. 
The Israelites have just finished a two-year training, a boot camp, specifically about how to trust God when they come to the promised land. The people have just rebelled except for Joshua and Caleb. We can't trust God. He's not bigger than the giants in the fortified cities. Now remember, they are fighting the evil Canaanites. Unless you think God of the Old Testament is angry and not merciful, God has waited 400 years, twice the age of our our whole um, nation, to say, now my mercy is up. So sometimes when you get to times when God looks very violent, you don't realize that there's been a 400-year time of long-suffering and patience leading up to this in the Canaanites. God's talking to a nation here about how the nation should respond in the ethics of war with a just cause, not necessarily personal ethics. All right, next, the river. What's the difference between maybe their culture and our culture as we try and figure out the main principle? Their culture, they're, they're wandering through a literal wilderness. We're kind of talking about more figurative wildernesses that we're wrestling with or looking at in our life. Time, they've had 400 years of mercy ending and 400 years of preparation for this moment. 400 years they've been hearing from Abraham, you're going to have a promised land, you're going to have a promised land. From Moses, for, for the last couple of years getting out of, out of Egypt, God's got a plan, God's got a promise. So they've got a lot of revelation, a lot of information, and they're accountable to that information and that inspiration. The situation, they've had two years of training, daily miracles, and there's dire consequences when you have higher revelation. You know more, therefore you're responsible for more. As far as the river, uh, we are not at war. We're looking for personal application, um, but still consequences can be dire for us. Even it might not be in the same way dire for them. For them, it's going to result in death. For us, it might be the consequences of reaping what we sow. Lastly, they're under the covenant of Mosaic law. We're under the covenant of grace. All right, so that's kind of the size of the river as we try and see the different applications between how it applied to them and how it applied to us. Our town. So what's the similar for us? We often don't learn and we practice uh, or practice what God taught us. He tells us what we should do, but we don't do it. So that was true for them, but certainly true for us. We uh, learn from suffering consequences, even though we don't like it. We're looking right now, this morning, for a personal application to this text, not necessarily an application for a country at war with the Canaanites. Uh, We are currently, as we're listening today, not at war, but we're facing some figurative giants and some fortified cities in the wildernesses we're going through. So that's kind of the process you're thinking about. Their town, size of the river, our town. Now, what is the principal bridge that connects the two? And what is a principal bridge? You're looking for something that's universally true for all people, for all time, and all places. And so here's what I think, if you're with us last week, kind of the background leads up to this week's passage. God is teaching us to trust him, whatever we face. He wants us to learn how to put confidence in him and often uses consequences to teach us and to discipline us. And you're going to see those consequences and discipline today. So here's the main point for today. God's discipline is always instructional. Its desire is to teach us how to learn and how to be a learner. In fact, what you're going to see is that the word discipline, God's discipline, 
It's designed to be instructional. The word discipline comes from two words. We get the word disciple from discipline and discipline like what we practice. So what is discipline? The practice of training people to learn using correction and consequences. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's one who learns and learns from another person. So that's kind of how we got to the main point today, and I'll show you kind of where that shows up in the text. But going through that process of thinking about their town, our town, what's the main point? And the main point today is that God's discipline is always instructional, teaching us how to learn to be a learner. So with that in mind, we're going to look at what does it mean to be a disciple, and we're going to look at how God disciplines his people. How do we discipline and find the principles of discipline embedded in this text. So let's begin with how to disciple, or how to discipline, rather. What is God doing with his people when they discipline them, and how can we extract some principles that apply to us when we're managing people, or when we're disciplining our kids or grandkids, or disciplining ourselves to move forward and maybe in training, personal training, or disciplining yourself in spiritual habits. We find ourselves here in the, the wilderness of Paran, and God is going to discipline his people for not trusting him going to the promised land. Here's a couple of principles we find. Number one, they are right about here on the map, just south of the promised land of Israel. They've all gathered back together, and they've got this big vote. And they just voted against God and for themselves. They're going to head back to Egypt. And here's what God does. Number one, discipline allows reaping. I think often we try and protect ourselves from difficulty, protect ourselves from consequences. And because we love our kids and love our grandkids and love people around us, we often protect them from consequences, which is understandable, right? No one wants to see people you love in pain. However, discipline allows people to reap what they've sown. And sometimes hitting rock bottom or having enough pain that you finally want to change requires you to let people you care about face the consequences of their actions. And that's exactly what God's doing here. His discipline allows them to reap what they've sown. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain, the rumble, the grumble, against me? The rebels. I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. And I want you to say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do. So notice the connection. What you've done is resulting in you reaping what I'm going to do. There's a direct connection between what you have sown leads to what you are reaping. And you say, well, if God is a good God, he wouldn't allow this to happen. And often we struggle in our current culture that a loving God shouldn't be just or shouldn't be judging. Or even in more practical matters of personal discipline, you're like, well, I don't want people to experience pain. Yet if you're a personal trainer or you've been with a personal trainer, you know often it's impossible to get stronger if you don't involve pain. Well, the same thing is true of overcoming habits. Often until we experience pain or reaping what we've sown, we don't actually learn the lesson. So just as you have done, so it will be. He goes on. Discipline withholds rewards and explains consequences. God's explaining. He doesn't just kind of do it. He says, here's what happened. Here's what you did. Here's the consequence of it. 
but he also listened. And I think often, depending on what you grew up under with your parents or your, your family system, I think many of us didn't grow up with a great system of balance of grace and truth. And God begins by saying, I've heard, I listen. I'm listening to what's going on. I hear what's happened. I've noticed. I was talking to Sierra Strong, our children's pastor, and she's always reading parenting books and has these great ideas that I wish I knew 20 years ago. <laughs> One she shared was a, a book about how important it is as a parent when you discipline to listen first. And we rush to assuming what we know is going on, rushing to you're talking back to me. We rush here and don't listen well. So this book on listening as parenting, this uh, mom and dad were really struggling that their daughter kept getting up at night and kept getting up at night and wouldn't fall asleep. And so they tried disciplining her, they tried taking away rewards, you can't play with your iPad, they tried consequences, losing responsibilities, and they're just beside themselves not knowing what to do. So I said, well, you know what, this book says we're supposed to listen, I'm sure that's going to work. So they sat down and said, honey, what's going on? Why, why do you think you're having such trouble sleeping and not listening to mom and dad? And their little daughter said to them, I'm scared. It wasn't rebellion. It wasn't obstinance. It was fear. Why are you scared? Because last month you told me that grandma fell asleep. And then we went to her funeral. And I'm afraid that if I fall asleep, I don't want to end up dying. Totally reframed. Oh my goodness, honey. That's not what we meant at all. In fact, there's a whole series. Sierra did some training on this, on how to talk to your kids about grief and some of the language choices we use as adults that kids can't understand and being clear and being blunter and not using euphemisms actually can be so much better. But these parents found that because they didn't listen well, they were disciplining something that wasn't obstinance or rebellion. It was simply a misunderstanding. And it totally changed the dynamic as they were able to explain it. So before we rush to discipline, I think we should first be great hearers. What does James tell us? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and then slow to get angry. Yeah, most of us disciplined or had parents who disciplined us by being slow to hear, quick to get angry, and quick to speak. So, discipline does involve withholding rewards. You don't get the promised land anymore, and there's going to be consequences. You're going to wander, but God does listen well. Next, if you are interested in kind of digging down into this, um, Sierra and uh, Pam Tackett are going to be doing a parenting workshop uh, coming up tonight from 6 to 7.30 on how to really build resilience into your kids, how to walk the line between grace and truth and allowing them to experience consequences, but also not so much that they can't recover from it. So that's tonight if you're interested. All right, God goes on. What are some other discipline techniques? He says, I've heard the complaints. Now, rewards, consequences. The carcasses of you who have complained against me are going to fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old, and this may be the age of accountability. And what's the age by which you're responsible for your own actions? God seems to set out here, if you're 20 or older, you start being accountable to what you do. So every 20 and older should have known better, and you're going to face the consequences of no promised land and 40 years of wandering. Except for the two people who trusted me. So again, it's fair proportional discipline because you guys did trust me, and Joshua and Caleb are going to go into the land. They're going to survive the 40 years. There's still some 
ways in which the whole community is going to suffer, but they're going to come into the promised land, the land I swore that you would dwell in. But your little ones, those who are 20 and younger, whom you said would be victims, who said, oh my goodness, they're going to die here. God isn't faithful. God has left us. No, no, no. I'm going to bring them in. They're going to get to experience the promises of me. And they will know the land which you have despised. You took the gifts I gave you and you despised them. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity. You're like, what do you mean infidelity? All they did is complain. Because no, the, what happened here was you were unfaithful to me. And that's why the consequences are so severe. And you're going to do that until your carcasses, the word carcasses comes up a lot here, are consumed in the wilderness. So, the people have come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph who brought them into Egypt. They waited there for 400 years where they heard about God's promise. Two years of training. That's why, that's why the, the consequences are so dire. They've had so much training here. They should know better. And here's where we are in the Old Testament. And because they don't trust in God, a whole generation will wander for 40 years until the next generation comes in. That's where we're at in the biblical narrative here. Now, the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land hear about this discipline God has for them, and they returned and made all the people complain. So the people who are responsible for this by bringing a bad report in the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague. God says, the rest of you have to face a consequence, but the leaders are even more responsible, and they died by the plague right there. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb remained alive, and the men who went to spy out the land. Now, you read that and you're like, doesn't this seem a little harsh? You're like, no, not a little harsh. This seems like horribly harsh. Well, let's go back to the context of their town. What's the difference between maybe God's normal procedure with people, God's procedure with us, and what was going on there? Remember, they've had recent supernatural and miraculous displays daily. You can trust me. You can trust me. Look what I did. Look what I did. That's a lot to be accountable for. Daily reminders of God's presence with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. They just finished two-year boot camp about make sure when you get to the land you trust me. Two years of boot camp to train for this very moment. And they didn't trust him. And the people rebelled. No, we can't trust God. So when you think about that, it's like, oh, still might seem harsh, but that's an awful lot they had given to them that they were accountable to, which is why God's discipline is so severe in this passage. But I think it's true in our lives as well. We see, like, why is God allowing that pain in my life or in someone's life? And you wonder if God's being too harsh. But the human brain and the human psyche's inability to change until you hurt bad enough you have to is pretty unbelievable. Just ask Bill Irwin. Bill was at the top of his game by age 24. At age 24, he built a company that would be bought out by LabCorp. So every time you've gone in for medical tests with LabCorp, you probably recognize the name. At age 24, he had... A rising star, making money, doing incredibly well for himself. Thank you very much. A few years later, he lost his sight. And he was angry at life and angry at everything because 
With all the money and wealth he had, he couldn't buy his way out of his blindness. He said one of the first decisions he made when he lost his sight was to reach out to God. God was not part of the equation. God had never been part of his life. He said, you know, as much as I had success on the outside, I was addicted to alcohol. I was not a great person. And though my resume looked great, my soul looked pretty terrible. I began to ask God for forgiveness. The blindness in my life forced me to look inward at things in my life I've been ignoring for many, many years. But Bill got famous because he decided to become an outdoors person after losing his sight. And he decided to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. Started in Georgia, ended in Maine, by himself with his German shepherd, Orient. The two combined will be known as the Orient Express as they hike their way up the Appalachian from Georgia and arrive in Maine. And as he's tapping his way along the path of the Appalachian Trail, people would ask questions. What's this blind man and his dog doing by themselves? And he would take the opportunity to say that he had to lose his sight in order to finally see. And what seemed incredibly harsh to us, losing your sight, he said is what it took for him to finally look at and see the things that really mattered. I don't always understand God's discipline, but in this case, what they'd been given, they were responsible for or be held accountable for. And what seems harsh to us is what it required that the next generation would trust in him. So, discipline. The next thing we see is that discipline is proportional. God doesn't kind of randomly say, well, how long should we put him in the wilderness? How about uh, 40 years? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. 40 years, yeah. It's proportional. He explains it. That's why good discipline isn't you made mom, dad, you made dad mad. It's here's the standard. We talked about this. When this happens, this happens. It's fair and it's proportional. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, each day you shall bear your guilt for one year, namely 40 years. So the 40 years of wandering is directly proportionate to 40 days of rebellion. And you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do to this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness they shall be consumed and they shall die. So again, he explains it. He says the action is directly tied to the consequence. So you know why this happened. It's also directly tied to how much responsibility you have for what I've been teaching you and training you in. So, the discipline is proportional. So that's what we learn from God's discipline. Different aspects of how God disciplines that our discipline is not going to be the same thing in our town as their town, but there's universal principles that transcend over the two. Allowing people to reap, withholding rewards, giving people consequences, and making sure you explain and discipline is proportional. Next, let's move on to what does it mean to be a disciple? Because we get to see two responses here <laughs> to that discipline. That's unfair. I can't believe that. No way. I'm not going to put up with this. So we get to see kind of three responses to how people are going to respond to God's discipline. Here's the first one. Bad disciples who don't want to be disciplined, they use a sorry, and I'm sorry, to avoid consequences. Now, haven't you ever done this? You've used an I'm sorry to avoid consequences. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Sorry, let's not talk about it anymore. It doesn't really go deep. Or maybe you happened with your kids or grandkids or employees said sorry, but they didn't really own what they did. You're going to see that here. 
A good disciple feels the sorry. Man, I hurt my boss's heart. I, I hurt morale. I hurt God's heart. And I'm going to accept the consequences because I know what I did is wrong. So Moses told these words, here's the discipline, 40 years of wandering, guys, to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. Man, that sounds like repentance. That sounds like I'm sorry. And then the next morning after they were sorry, they rose up in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain and said, here we are. I think we're ready to go into the promised land now, which the Lord has promised. Uh, We know we sinned, so let's forget about that wandering thing. Let's forget about the not going in thing. We're going to tell God what we can do, which is we missed it yesterday. We're ready today. God's like, "Uh, that's not how it works. I give you two years of training. I had two voices of people saying, trust in God this day. Do not rebel against you. You can't tell me that you're sorry and then say you're not willing to face the consequences. And that's because bad disciples don't learn that the who is more important than the what. What? Well, we're willing to go in now. Yeah, but who you rebelled against, who you didn't trust, who you blasphemed, who you, who you grumbled against, that's the issue here. And Moses brings that to their attention. He says, why do you transgress the command of the Lord? You're doing the same thing. Before, you didn't go in when he told you to. Now you want to go in when he tells you not to. It's the same problem. You're still transgressing the commandment of the Lord. And, and by the way, guys, you're not going to succeed. Why? Don't go up. Lest you're defeated by your enemies now. And here's why. Because the Lord is not with you now. The most important thing we can do is we want to be with God. And when God was going to the promised land, the most important thing we do is we go with God. Now that God's not going in the promised land, the most important thing we do is say, I want to be with God, even if it means experiencing his faithfulness in the wilderness. Still going to have a pillar of fire. Still going to have a pillar of cloud. God's still with them. But the most important thing is who, who, being with God, where he is, not the what. Well, I'm willing to do it now. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword if you try it without God, because you have turned away from the Lord. What do you mean we just repented? No, you didn't really repent. You still turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. The who is more important than the what. I remember this as a kid, you know, I was the type of kid that, really didn't like getting in trouble, but I also liked breaking rules, which created a lot of internal conflict in me at times, because if my parents tried to play the rule game with me, I've never found a rule I couldn't find the way around, and I've never found a way that I couldn't uh, skew a system. And my dad is a big, you know, cleaner, and my my mom is is big on picking stuff up, and I was a messy. So my mom put a sign on our door that said, creative kids are rarely tidy. That was to prepare my dad for entering my room. And I remember when I would get in trouble, you know, early on in the early days when we would actually get spanks occasionally, you know, if we did something wrong or really rebellious. And I remember, you know, I'd put on like 10 pairs of underwear, you know, get those on. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't hurt at all. But I remember when we were kind of game playing discipline, hey, we're going to do this and you're going to face that. Yeah, I just kept finding ways around it. But if my parents appealed to my heart, this isn't true of all parenting. For me, this is, this is the way it was the way to parent me. Is they say, Chad, could you help us out? We, we, we tried this, it's not working. We tried this, it's not working. We just need your help. It was amazing how that would actually engage my heart. Now, my brother, he required a lot of consequences, a lot of reaping. Um, but for me, when my parents said, it's, it's about us. 
We're not playing a game. We're not playing chess. We love you. We're trying to do the right thing. Could you help us here? When they appealed to me, it was about who? My mom, my dad. I wanted to help. When they came at me kind of with uh, the, the here's what we're going to do and there's no way out of it, I'd find a way out of it. There's something about wanting to please dad, your heavenly father, that God wants to be the motivation. I'm sorry, not that I broke the rule. I'm sorry that I broke God's heart. That's where God wants us to get. When we sin, when we trespass, it's, oh, God, I'm so sorry I broke your heart. I'm so sorry I didn't see who you are. I'm so sorry that I didn't trust that you know best. That's the attitude God wants. Not some obscure rules for no rule's sake. There's a principle behind those rules that God knows the best life comes from doing life with him, not thinking we know better than him. And that really brings us to the, to the next portion of, uh, of this, which is that bad disciples presume they know better than their mentor. And if God is our discipler and godly discipleship or discipline is instructional, it's trying to instruct us how to live life, how often do we presume we know better? We know better where we can't go or shouldn't go or it's too big or the obstacle's too hard or we know better that God should let us in now because we're ready to go now. Bad disciples presume they know better than their mentor. But they presumed. Thank you for the warnings, Moses. I think we'll do, do fine. Like a few days earlier, there's no way they could possibly take on the Canaanites, couldn't possibly take on the, the Amalekites. Now, God said, I'm not going with you. I think we'll be fine. Thank you, Moses. Moses, get away from me. Boy, you bother me. Moses, we don't need him anymore. So they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord departed with them. Mm-mm, God's not going with you. Then the Amalekites, the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain, came down and attacked them. Poof, oh, man, this hurts. Oh, that's painful. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm, just like we warned. And drove them back as far as Hormah. So here's where they find themselves. Right here in this section, just south of the Promised Land, in Hormah. And they're like, oh, my goodness. And they're still not repenting and still not trusting God. But what's the real issue? They presume they know better than God. They presume Moses' words are not really helpful. They presume their way is better than God's way. And if you want to move from being a bad disciple to a good disciple, start saying, I don't understand it. I may not even like it, but I'm going to trust God as my mentor and God as my leader. You know, God will often allow difficult things to come into our life to discipline us and to grow us. I met one of the most disciplined guys I've probably ever met in my life about a month ago. I don't know if you know his name, uh, but it's Boss Rutten. Boss Rutten was an MMA fighter. He really put MMA fighting on the map. And I got a chance to interview him at our exploring service last month. And he's a, an MMA fighter, a world champion. He also became a TV star and a movie star and a lot of movies with Kevin James. And I asked him about, as such a disciplined person, how did God use the difficult circumstance in his life? He's going to talk about that. But then I also asked, have you ever met anyone who was a disciple, who followed a way of life, who followed God? And as an agnostic, 
who's disciplined, he was intrigued when he came face to face with a real disciple and what that meant. Let me let you hear their story from an interview I did about a month and a half ago. Let's watch. What are some of the challenges you had growing up? I understand you were bullied as a kid. You had a skin problem, an asthma problem. I had a horrible skin disease. I was the leper in school. That's what they literally called me. You know, hey, leper, watch out. Your fingers don't fall off your ear. I had it on my face, too, and my hands. Uh, I had also severe asthma, so I was a very skinny kid. So you overcome all these uh, kind of challenges in your life. You now got, you know, kind of check the box on, on MMA. You've, you've got some TV movie stuff under your belt now. And so you're, you're, at, uh, you're on the set of Mall Cop 2. You've been friends with Kevin James since 97. Yeah. And turns out uh, he kind of strikes up a conversation and says, how about some cigars, beer, and talk about how the world began? And, and I know that if Kevin would have said, hey, he's going to talk about God, I go, ah, good, I'm up to my room. We're gonna <laughs> you see, so he yeah. knew. He knew not to mention that. He yeah. said, you know, hey, he's going to talk about how the world got started. I go, oh, that is interesting. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. How, are, how do you feel like, looking back on it, God prepared you through the things you're struggling with your alcoholism for that moment as well? Well, yeah, he, everything. You just become... Uh, Accountable. It's uh, the verses first I read, you know, 2 Peter 2.19, you know, talking about whatever overcomes a man to that he is enslaved. And so you think they have freedom, but they're all the, the, the slaves to corruption. That's what the line is, and then to whatever overcomes a man to that he is enslaved. Well, for, in my case, that was alcohol. Mm -hmm. I don't like to be in control of anything and anybody, you know. And if you look at it like that, you go like, yeah, I am a slave to alcohol mm -hmm. because it tells me drink me, and I'm actually doing it. Okay, mm. maybe I got to stop that. So now you're starting to think about God. You know, you didn't want to be religious, right? You yeah. didn't, but so what is it you said? I want some of what they, those people have or that person have, or what Kevin James had. So Kevin James is a practicing Catholic. His, his faith is very, you know, real to him. What was it in him or in other people that you said, I want, I don't even know if I believe it all, but I want what I see in that. What was the benefits? Well, there's always that hole that they talk about. There's always something that they'll fulfill. And I was fulfilling it with alcohol. But why is it there? Why can't I fix this? And why is under, uh, suicide rates on the millionaires some of the highest numbers? Why is that? They can buy anything they want. Shouldn't yep. they be happy? And I know a lot of famous people and, 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 and with power and, and money. But uh, most of them are really not happy. Mm. And Kevin is the opposite. He's always up. He's always that. Sure, he has talents, you know. I'm, I'm sure he has to. I mean, sure. we all have. But he's the guy, if I look at all the other comedians there, that's almost bipolar, you know, They're happy, crying, happy. It's like crashing up and down, and they have no, their life is not under control. And what do they all do? Everybody's drinking, partying, doing crazy stuff, you know. It's, and I'm just looking at him. He's so straight, always, hmm. you know. And I go, so I want that, hmm. you know. So it was really easy for me once I realized, oh, that was what he was following. Hmm. I go, well, that's what I want. Mm. You know, and my friends also, they said, hey, man, you toned down, you get so much. The first thing they uh, measure, noticed was, uh, I don't hear you do profanity anymore. You know, I, I tried to make, I would cut out everything, mm. every bad thoughts. I, I always do this. You see, I have a rubber band here. This is how I, this is how you <laughs> stop swearing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because if the first time doesn't hurt, do it three times in a row. It, it's, I'm a fighter, and it hurts. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, how about for a lot of people when they're journeying toward Jesus, um, there's emotional hurdles. Can I trust God? Why do you let this happen in my past? And there's intellectual hurdles. Problem of evil. Uh, does God really exist? What were some of your emotional hurdles or some of your intellectual hurdles as you were kind of moving in this faith journey? Yeah, it's good that you say that because I, like, I hated it that I had the diseases and I hated it with the asthma and I hated everything. 
and now I understand it was given to me for a reason. Hmm. If I wouldn't have had that, I probably wouldn't have been doing this interview with you right now. Hmm. I would have had a completely different career path. Yeah. Once you know all that, you start treating everything like that, gotcha. and then everything becomes a pleasure because if something bad happens, well, God put it there for a reason, mm. right? right? So let's fix this problem because he, he puts it there to make me better. I don't know if you've heard of Boss or, or Kevin James before or seen the TV shows or movies. It was amazing to hear a lot of things because it reminded me of our mission as a church, right? We're trying to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers. And one of the main ways we do that is we try and equip you and I to live a life that's so dynamic and is so attractive that people around us who don't believe the way we do are drawn to it. That's exactly what Kevin James was doing, right? He's got a, a buddy of his. They've been friends for years. Uh, they've enjoyed doing TV shows and movies together. But the way he lives has Boss asking questions. And then he was smart enough and winsome enough as a Christian to not say, hey, you want to talk about God and go to a Bible study? But he knew he, that Boss was interested in the world and science and said, hey, I got a guy coming to speak. How about we grab some beer and uh, we talk about how the world was made? And I'm interested in that. And that became the beginning of a journey where Boss stepped into a conversation, heard a Christian speaker talk about God designing everything, God making us, and us having a purpose more than just to survive and eventually die. As a guy who was incredibly disciplined, he recognized in someone else uh, a belief system, a, a hope, a security, uh, an eternal life that had him asking questions. And in that journey, Boss, who had success, he had popularity, he's won all the awards in his industry, he said, but that didn't satisfy the thirst of my soul. So as a church, that's what we're hoping to do. We want people to see we're disciples. And I love what Boss showed at the end. When you understand that God truly does work all things together for good, or in the book of Hebrews, that a loving father disciplines us, what happens? You start saying, whatever he's allowing in my life, whatever I'm reaping or whatever's just happening because of a bad world, God's going to use this to grow me. And imagine the sky's the limit in your life. If whatever's going to come your way, God will use to grow you and to bring the best through you. Like you listen to boss say that, and you're like, well, I want more of that in my life as he's been growing as a Christian. And so as a church, we have an exploring service designed for you to ask questions, for you to invite friends who've been asking questions to an environment where they're going to hear great music they love and hear the gospel presentation, the main message of God, interviews like that, where they can begin to say, man, I'm looking for something more. Even though I think I have everything, I don't seem to have what really matters. See, what Kevin James had and what Moses and Caleb and Joshua had was a different spirit. I mentioned this last week, but I want to I end with that because I think that's the application again for us today is that I want you to learn and to live with a different spirit. A different spirit that says, I'm sorry I broke God's heart. I'm willing to trust him even when he disciplines me. I'm willing to trust his way in my life. I, I know how to be disciplined by God, I also know how to be discipled by God because I trust him as my loving leader. Remember, the two guys who are ready to go in are the two guys who will still have to wander for 40 years, but they're going to get in at the end, and that was Caleb and Joshua. And God says this amazing thing about Caleb. But my servant Caleb, he has a different spirit in him. He has followed me fully, 
and I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. So let's just say he's 20. He's going to lose 40 years of his life, right? So he's now 60 to 80, depending on how old he was to begin with, by the time he gets in the promised land. So let's fast forward. He's now 60 to 80. What is his discipleship and discipline like at age 60 to 80? We find it in Joshua chapter 4. Apparently it's been a lot of years by the time he gets to this battle because now he's in his 80s. Here I am this day, Caleb says, 85 years old. As yet I am just as strong this day as the day Moses sent me in. Just as my strength was then, so is my strength now for war, both for going out and coming in. Therefore, give me this mountain. At 85, you think, be like, you know what, I'll take the planes. Uh, I will outsource the battling. But he is so discipled by God. He is so disciplined in his walk with God. At 85, he's not retiring, he's refiring. He has a different spirit at 40, at 60, and 85. A spirit that says, God, I want the challenges in my life. I want the biggest things to take on. Give those to me, God. I have a different spirit. What would it be like for you if you lived with a different spirit? The kind of spirit that says, God, whatever age I am, I want to be discipled by you. Whatever age I am, I'll accept the discipline from you. And whatever mountains you have before me, God, give me that mountain. That's the attitude I want for you as you live a different spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a place we can come and wrestle with difficult passages, challenge ourselves to pursue you in powerful ways. God, give us that different spirit of your spirit, your Holy Spirit living in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you all next week as we continue our journey.